This podcast is brought to you by Anise Kavanaugh, the author of a new book entitled Contagious You. Unlock your power to influence, lead, and create the impact you want. Please listen to podcast number 753, where Anise and Greg speak about how great leaders enable and encourage positive and contagious energy, as well as why nourishing our internal state and our mental health needs to come first if we are to be effective leaders. Please join Greg and Anise in this wonderful interview in podcast number 753. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Adam, as I do every time, I thank my listeners because without these listeners who continue to come back and want to learn about books and really are learners, uh, they're continual learners, all of them. And today, joining me from Vancouver, British Columbia, is Adam Creek. And Adam has a new book out called The Responsibility Ethic, 12 Strategies Exceptional People Use to Do the Work and Make Success Happen. Good day to you, Adam. How are you doing? I'm good, Greg. How are you doing? Well, it's great having you on the show. And our mutual friend, I'm going to put a shout out to him, is Levi Bukas. And Levi has a software company called Momentum. And if for those of you out there don't have Momentum, Go check it out. Uh, Adam and I were just talking about it ahead of time. He's the one that linked us up. And he's he's a wonderful man. And I'm really pleased to actually be doing this interview with you today. Um, I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you, Adam, because you have a fascinating background. And I think it's something that everybody's going to want to know. So, Adam is one of North America's top management consultants and executive coaches with degrees and certifications from Stanford University, UBC Saunders School of Business, and Queen Smith School of Business. He's a guest lecturer at the University of Victoria and teaches strategies and skills of leadership, high performance, and perseverance to corporate and government teams globally through keynotes, workshops, and online seminars. And you can also see many of his talks if you just go to YouTube and type in his name, Adam Creek, K-R-E-E-K, you will see many of those, including TEDx. Adam has coached, trained, and taught hundreds of thousands of people, including teams at Microsoft, General Electric, Mercedes-Benz, Shell, and on and on and on. And Adam walks his talk. He's an entrepreneur. He runs two small companies called Creek Speak Business Solutions, and Ergo Eco Solutions, a low-carbon initiative that connects small businesses with small governments. Uh, He's a two-time Olympian. Adam holds 60 international medals, including Olympic gold and multiple Halls of Fame inductions. And in 2013, Adam named the first ever attempt to row unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa to America. And that is the subject of an NBC Dateline documentary called Capsize. And he lives in the Pacific Northwest, as I said, with his wife and three children. Well, Adam, pleasure having you on the show. And thanks, because I think that introduction is important, especially this part about you being a two-time Olympian, because much of that plays into this book. And really the responsibility ethic. And you write that the responsibility ethic exists to challenge and heal everyone who has been told to follow their dreams. You say that 
we've been sold the dream, but we don't read the fine print, hard work and labored action. What advice would you give to the listeners today um, about transforming their dreams into this vision and action plan that you talk about in the book? Well, the, you know, the advice I would give uh, is to, to keep working and to find a way to you know, enjoy the labor and find a way to enjoy uh, the struggle. And I remember when I was younger, the movie came out called The Secret. And, uh, and there's a lot of books that came out afterwards. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Most definitely, yes. Yes. And so the secret was, you know, I, I think there's some truth to that philosophy, but the, you know, the thing that was kind of hokey uh, about the way it was presented was that, well, if I just put out all this positive energy, then all I have to do is sit there and then checks start showing up in the mail and everything. And that's not quite how it works. You have to you have to be positive and put out positive energy, but then you also have to, you know, work bloody hard. And uh, I think that's that's the part that people don't necessarily want to don't want to accept at first uh, is is the hard work uh, that that it takes to do you know to achieve your dream. And you know, and along with the hard work, it comes a lot of um, you, know, you could pursue them as uh, you know, challenging, uh, perceive them as, as challenging emotions. And when I talk about the responsibility ethic, you know, with, with the, you know, the ethic that I think underlines this, this work ethic, this idea of, of self-leadership, of, of working with other people as well, um, is, you know, is about taking responsibility for, for your emotional response uh, to your dreams. And if you're, you're feeling if you're feeling frustrated, if you're feeling um, let down, if you're feeling like you're hitting some kind of spiritual or emotional blockage, recognize that that's, that should be there and that is part of the journey. And so when I talk about the responsibility ethic, I talk about, about big and having these, these goals that you, that you pursue, uh, but I also talk about um, gritting your teeth a little bit and, uh, and grinding through. And, uh, you know, and often we want the quick fix, we want the hack, we want to get there as quickly as possible. But uh, the fact of the matter is there's, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of discipline, uh, there's a lot of hard effort that has to go on in the background. Well, obviously, having won gold medals, it, you recognize the amount of hard work that has to go in. You speak about that during the book. And... I want to talk a little bit about um, your harrowing story. Um, you know, you talked about from Africa to America in this rowboat with your buddies, this 29-foot ocean rowboat, and narrowly escaping with your life as I was reading that chapter and just imagining the the size of the waves and the things that you you that you guys went through. Can you tell the story and how fear can prevent us in any situation from taking responsibility and how you took responsibility during this harrowing event, because, you know, fear is one of those things that creeps in and response and ability. You even talked about it when your head was underwater. It's your ability to respond. Um, and you really did uh, an amazing thing. So I think our listeners would love to hear the story. 
Yeah, well, we were <clears throat> we were in this rowboat, 29 feet long boat we left from Dakar, Senegal, and we had uh, quite an enjoyable adventure out uh, on the middle of the ocean. Then 73 days into our crossing, so this is over over two and a half months into our crossing, we had, we had just crossed into the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle it has a reputation for using heavy currents that cross over and create really funky wave patterns. And we had these two um, peaking waves right beside each other. They, they picked us up. They picked our uh, our stern up on one of the waves, and it surfed down and it smashed into the wave beside us. And when we smashed into the wave, the, the water started wrapping around our sleeping cabin. And at that point in time, we were going through a shift change. So two guys were on the deck. Uh, I was in the cabin, and Pat was in the hatch door brushing his teeth. Water wrapped around and filled our sleeping cabin. Now, this boat is designed to self-right and to be self-righting. And when the sleeping cabin door is, is closed, the boat can't be capsized. But unfortunately, the, <laughs> the cabin door was open, and so the water came in at the wrong time. And five minutes earlier, five minutes later, it's fine. But here it was, the water is flooding in. And if you can picture this, you're in a small cabin, about four feet wide, four feet tall, eight feet, very small confined space. Water's coming in. First thing you think about is your buddy Pat. So you say, Pat, go, Pat, go. You push Pat out, the boat's upside down. <clears throat> and then you're trapped in a small space filled with water and the air is gone. And at this point in time, you think there might be some fear uh, in in your being, but the, the fear isn't really, um, fear isn't there uh, to a certain extent. You're all about action. And uh, it was amazing how it's just, everything just seems to, to be natural in, you know, in the point of danger. So you're, you're looking around, you're underwater, you pop your hand out, there's a floating cushion, you pop up, you take a deep breath, and you're no noticing the water levels slowly rise. And you're thinking, hey, be calm, do this properly, and you'll be okay. <clears throat> and you see a um, you have, uh, a shining light, uh, which is the hatch door, and the, the light from outside. We capsized around 6.30 in the morning, so just around sunrise. And so swam towards the, uh, the hatch door and uh, and popped out, looked around. Was everyone okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Everybody's okay. And we started going through our emergency procedures. And again, fear hadn't quite crept into our uh, into our mentality. We were, we were looking around. We were even uh, making jokes <laughs> with one another and and laughing a little bit. Uh, in, you know, in spite of the fact that our boat was upside down, we were in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, thankfully, we had gone through the preparation, uh, so we had done uh, emergency uh, capsize training so we uh, this procedure was familiar uh, because we had uh, we had trained for it although not expecting to ever have it. we were there and we we deployed our emergency life raft we pushed our emergency beacons and uh, we tried to rewrite the boat a couple times and again fear stays away when you're in action when when we're in action fear stays at bay Fear actually comes in when you have time to pause. And that's when I felt it, probably at two hours after our capsize. 
Uh, my buddy Jordan had just turned purple. He was starting to become hypothermic. So Jordan and Pat had gone into the emergency life raft to warm up and sit there. Uh, Marcus was diving under the boat just to shore up some of our, more of our equipment and to uh, check things out and make sure things were okay. And then I was just sitting there. I was sitting there floating in the water, looking at the life raft, looking at, uh, at the boat, and just, I was just thinking. And that's, that's when fear came in. And uh, yeah, so how can fear prevent us from taking responsibility? Well, fear can prevent us from taking responsibility if we um, choose to let it uh, fester. We choose to let it uh, like have us free and, and do nothing. And fear can prevent us from taking responsibility if we actually try to run away from it as well. Because again, fear is put at bay when we're in action. So sometimes when we're afraid, we act and act and act and act and act. And that might be our medicine for not having to face fear and to have that conversation with fear and ask fear what it's trying to tell us. Because mm -hmm. fear can often be an indicator of uh, of something that we need to address. So there is, I, and I think there is, fear is something that that you should face, and fear uh, is something that you should you should look at. Right, and, and I think that what you were saying about inactivity and fear. So when you're in action you didn't really have the fear, but when you started contemplating the fear or the fear of what could have happened, you know, the scenarios that you can play. And I think that's what happens is, you know, the monkey mind takes over and we all know we have 60 to 90,000 thoughts a day and um, probably 99.9% .9 of those negative thoughts. And a lot of them are negative, right? They don't ever happen. Uh, but that's where the fear comes in, and it's really about dispelling many of those uh, those those thoughts. Adam, obviously, you know, as you were sharing, uh, taking responsibility in that story uh, about being out in that twenty nine foot uh, ocean rowboat, and that when you were in action, you didn't have the fear, but then when you paused, there were some fear, and I think. Uh, there's also a lot of fear in setting goals. There's a fear of being too small, and then there's a fear of taking a big giant step in your goal. And you write a lot about goals in this book because obviously as an Olympian, you've had to set lots of goals and you've had to achieve them. And you state uh, that remembering cluster benefits in times of doubt gives us the courage to take responsibility. Now, I'd never heard of the term cluster benefits. So you, can you tell our listeners what cluster benefits are and how to utilize them to reach lofty, big goals that we might have that we'd like to achieve? Well, <clears throat> cluster benefits are benefits that we, or side benefits that uh, we receive on the path to achieving a big goal. A great example would be uh, when... I'll use my own life story. When when I decided to row across the ocean, our big goal was to row from uh, Dakar to Miami. That was the goal, you know, to get to the other side. But there are a lot of other cluster benefits that 
that accrued. One, we had an educational program. We reached 20,000 kids and we had, an, um, we reached them with some science, technology, engineering, and math educational programming. Uh, so benefit, uh, we partnered with eight universities and uh, we helped a bunch of people achieve their master's degrees, PhDs, benefit. Um, in preparing for this row, we had to build an organization that could support, um, that could support a boat to go across the ocean. It was, uh, you know, it took about half a million dollars to make this adventure happen. So I had to learn how to be a better, uh, better at sales, at marketing, at communication, at administration. So building these, you know, um, entrepreneurial skills, communication skills, uh, um, business administration skills, there's another cluster benefit. Uh, we had uh, interactions with the media, so we were getting out a message, we were, we were talking with, with a broader network with a lot of people. There's another cluster benefit. We were able to have an experience in the middle of the ocean, there's another cluster benefit. And so, as you can see, there are a lot of different benefits that came you know, along, uh, you know, along the way of, of um, you know, of, of achieving this goal. And you can think about this in your own life if you have, if you have a big goal, whether it's a, a career goal or um, an adventure goal or, or what it is, there's, you know, there's a lot of different, um, you know, I'm just going to say, you know, down, downstream benefits that occur just by but just by pursuing this one big goal, and it can also be useful when we're setting our goals as well. Because often when we when we think of of goals that we want to achieve, uh, sometimes we um, we get distracted, and there's multiple things that we want to you know, to increase in our life or improve in our life. Uh, so one thing that we can do is is write down everything that we possibly want to achieve in our future life and then think if there's one big thing that I pursue, how can I achieve as many of these these goals on the path to this one uh, one big goal so um, cluster benefits are our side benefits that are achieved on the path to a big goal and, and when we acknowledge the cluster benefits that we are achieving and the gain that we are getting on the journey. Mm -hmm. uh, then it gives us gives us courage to continue because on the journey there's a lot of doubt and sometimes if we're if we're solely focused on the endpoint and if we see the endpoint flash away and we see the endpoint move we said oh I want to be a doctor I want to be a doctor and you start going through your your training to become a doctor and all of a sudden you realize you're not going to be a doctor you didn't achieve the marks you didn't get into the school you didn't you didn't make it there and it's you know 12 year process and then you end up you know you end up becoming a dentist yeah and so some people could become oh i'm like now i'm a dentist i wanted to be a doctor now i'm a dentist and they can see like their whole life their whole career is a failure but um if you're pursuing this idea of, of being a doctor you say well what are why do I actually want to be a doctor? And what are the benefits of being a doctor? Well, I'm, well, I'm helping people. You know, I'm building uh, an independent business that I can run for myself. I can have, I have kind of control of my time, and I can have uh, more freedom in in my daily life. And you start seeing the you know the different benefits that you're accruing in the pursuit of this goal. And even when the endpoint changes, if you're achieving a lot of those cluster benefits, you can find a way to be you know, to be more satisfied and to and, you know, and to live your good life and to live your best life. Well, I think it's the small wins every day that you have. And I think that's what you have to 
be appreciative of and have gratitude for is that, you know, every day, if you really looked at your life, the uh, phenomenal things that you do as a human being, um, even in a small way that actually help you or help somebody else. And you mentioned that you're no stranger to failure, both personally and professionally. And you did a TEDx talk on the power of non-attainment. You state that having a constructive relationship with failure is necessary to living a good life. Can you share how we would have this constructive relationship as well as speak with us or our listeners about your four-step strategy for taking responsibility? The... And when you talk about the four-step strategy, you're talking about reflect, learn, grow, yeah, let it go. Exactly. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's the if we need a, a constructive relationship with failure, and failure is going to happen in our lives no matter what. Um, I went the first Olympics, for example, that I went to, I expected to win, and I expected the consolation prize to be you know, a silver or bronze medal. And at that time we finished fifth, which, um, you know, which externally can look not that bad for us. It felt horrible because we had expected uh, to win. We knew that we finished well below our potential and our ability. And so it felt like a a very, a very strong failure um, at that point in time. And with, with failures, especially if they're big failures, uh, the, you know, the result is a lot of emotional baggage and failure can hold us back from setting big goals in the future because we've, well, because we've experienced so much emotional pain through the process. And um, the, but if we don't move through the, these failures, we don't, one, learn about ourselves, two, we don't figure out how, what we want or what we need, you know, to live, you know, to live a good life and to, uh, to enjoy our time here on this planet. And so going through this failure in, in Athens and processing other failures I've had in my life, both personally and professionally, that have been you know, very weighted. Uh, I developed a, this four, four-step process of reflecting, learning, growing, and, uh, and letting go. And the first step is reflection. And I think this one is the most important step. And this is the step that people uh, move through too quickly. Uh, and when when I talk about reflection, I talk about uh, emotional processing, and uh, we need to take time to actually emotional emotionally process our our failure. We need to take time to think about it, to lean into it, because if it is a big failure, it actually feels horrible, and you want to run away from that negative feeling. Just in the same way, fear, uh, we want to stay active and stay in action to. You know, to run away from fear, the same thing happens with, uh, with with failure. You want to try to run away from that negative fe- feeling, but what works well is to actually lean into it. Um, for example, there's a, there's an executive I coached who had a um, he had a billion dollar real estate investment trust, and uh, it ended up going flop, and he lost hundreds of millions of dollars, including you know the money of himself, of his his parents, of his in laws of everyone around him, and it was a massive, massive failure. And so it, it had a heavy weight on, on his soul, and, uh, and it prevented him from moving forward to take on that next challenge. 
But the one uh, thing that he did that was really helpful, he went, he go on the, the, the treadmill and go for a run for 30 minutes at a time. And he just lean into those negative feelings and feel, you know, feel the shame, feel the regret, feel, you know, try to process, you know, the negative emotional, spiritual baggage that came with that failure. And eventually over time, you know, revisiting that, that negative feeling was able to process it and, and, and let it go. Um, and a big part of that is figuring out how to separate facts from feelings. And feelings have no logic to them. They just need to be ex- expressed. They need to be, uh, they, they need to be exercised. First step is reflect. So making sure we're taking time to reflect. The next one I feel is, is, um, is often a lot easier is the learning side. So learning is writing things down, thinking about what, uh, what you could have changed to have prevented your failure from happening, what you could have changed to have made it better in, you know, in the long term. And writing down that list, figuring out what needs to change, figuring out what happened. Again, going through this process of separating facts from feelings and making sure that you are addressing the facts and what truly happened and what you can change. And then we move to the third step, which is learning. So can you create new habits? Can you create new principles? Um, if this is, if you're working with a group of people, if it's organizational learning or team learning, can you create new policies or procedures to make sure that this mistake doesn't happen again? And when you've emotionally processed something, when you've intellectually processed it, and then you've actually changed habits and changed ways of behavior, then the failure no longer has hold on you. And in fact, you turn it from being um, an anchor to being a stepping stone. And you can actually turn that failure into a badge of honor uh, and, and proudly display it because you've emotionally processed it, you've intellectually processed it, and your behavior has changed. And you've become a better, stronger person because of it. And it's let go. Those are great, uh, I want to just say, ag- actions to live by. You know, you've really got a way for people to process that. And I think that reflection part is really so important. You say people don't take enough, enough time for that. And I think that reflecting part kind of sets up those other three steps as well. You know, and Adam, in your chapter on take responsibility for your goals, you mentioned coming back from Spain and just winning the gold medal for rowing. You talk about in the book how your tank was empty and that reaching another goal seemed like a lot of work. Um, For our listeners, how would you advise taking small steps toward our goals as well as aligning our energy with our values? Because that's what kind of, I think, happened to you. You know, you, you go to this high, this peak, you win this gold medal, you come back. Uh, you're talking about how your energy feels very drained. Um, how would you tell people to manage that energy? Well, I think energy comes in waves, and I think it's it's important to acknowledge this. When I was when I was young, I didn't really know that. You know, energy goes up and down, and uh, motivation goes up and down. And when you're in a low energy state, if you're feeling uh, you know, depressed or demotivated, it's important to acknowledge that energy travels in waves. You know, if you're at a low point, it's going to come back up again because that is the nature of energy. That's the nature of human energy. That's the nature of emotional energy. 
So one of the first things I would say is that just be patient, you know, ride the low, ride the wave, you know, be patient. Um, often what happens when you're in a low, uh, you, you want to be back at that time where you're, where you're focused and you're engaged and you have high energy and you're positive. And usually you're low energy and negative. And so uh, what I've found is that it's, you know, instead of trying to change the low energy to high energy and the negative energy to positive energy at the same time, it's best to stay in the low energy state. If you're in a low energy negative state, turn that low energy negative state into a low energy positive state. And so this story that you're talking about, when I came back from Seville, we had won the world championships. It was, it was the first for a country, Canada. It was the first time a Canadian men's eight had ever won the world championships. So um, historical first uh, for our country, or historical first for a boat. It was amazing. <laughs> we were, you know, we were walking down the streets in Seville, Spain, high-fiving people. We were, we were wearing our spandex, drinking cervezas. It was, it was magical. It was, it was really the, you know, a, you know, it felt like a true victory at the time. And then, you know, I come, I, I came back to my hometown in, in Victoria, BC. Uh, and was getting ready to train for the next Olympics, but the Olympics was two years away and it was going to be a lot of work again. And I just felt empty, drained, depressed. And I didn't feel like I had what it took to, you know, to continue on this path. And the answer that I ended up finding was that there was, um, you know, there were some basic needs that weren't being fulfilled or in fact there was one basic need that wasn't being uh, fulfilled and I you know I call these needs the you know the fantastic four and the four um, yeah the, 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 the four needs that need to be fulfilled I think in most of our lives is one delivering community value making sure that you're contributing to something that's that's bigger than yourself that you're giving back um, health and wellness, making sure that you're pursuing a healthy and well lifestyle. Three, building authentic relationships. And four, uh, self-awareness. And for me, uh, being an Olympic athlete is actually very, very selfish. And uh, I felt like I wasn't delivering enough community value just through my athletic pursuits. I needed to do something that was um, a little bit more you know, altruistic. And so uh, for me, what helped give me some energy at that low point was actually becoming a big brother through uh, big brothers and sisters and uh and this i started hanging out with this little guy it was october i'd come back in um, in september i was riding this low and i was looking for a way to set a set a goal that could give me some energy and i couldn't find any energy within my my sport or my athletic pursuits and so I started looking broader and broader, and I ended up um, becoming this, you know, this big brother. Hung out with this eight-year-old kid, and we, um, yeah, over time we just started, um, you know, you know, once, once a week or once every other week we'd go and we'd hang out, and it was just this kind of thing where you were hanging out with a kid who didn't have a dad and. Felt like I was giving back, and he was he was enjoying his time. And it was a time that I could uh, completely disconnect from my my goal at the time, and so it was it was really real refueling. And you talk about values as well, and I think it um, it really hits to to one of my core values. Um, you know, one of my core values is uh, is generosity and impact. 
And so if I don't feel like I'm being generous, if I don't feel like I'm having an impact in the work that I'm doing, then, um, then all motivation disappears and, um, and I'm not very happy. So I think it's, uh, it's very important that we understand what our core values are and, uh, and go through the process. It take, and our core values can evolve and change slowly over time. Uh, so especially if you're in a low point, if you're in a point where you're, you're feeling a bit listless, it's, um, it's very useful to go through a values discovery exercise. You know, identify uh, the states of being that you want to that you want to live in, and what uh, what states of being you find most valuable, and uh, and start setting goals that align with uh, with those values and help um, bring those values into 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 life. Well, it's very evident that uh, you know you came back from Spain and you had to find something like uh, Big Brothers of America or Big Brothers of Canada, whatever it was to really uh, bring that energy back to you and how that little boy really helped you do that. And I think that's the spiritual growth as well. I think as we grow spiritually, we understand that there's a greater uh, cause for us and there's a greater calling for us uh, to do these kind of things. And I'm glad that you were able to find something like that to do it. You know, and in your chapter on taking responsibility for professionalism, you talk about Kyle Hamilton being the strongest and most consistent member of your rowing team. What was it about Kyle that exemplified this concentration on work and this professional ethic um, that you reference in the book? Well, Kyle was <clears throat> Kyle was a you know he's more of an introverted leader. You know he was he was quiet, but he was consistent and he was regular. And uh, more than that, he he performed uh, on on a consistent basis. You know, Kyle's story is is really remarkable because when I first met Kyle, he had just uh, he he wasn't as good of of a rower uh, as um, as as me. I to be frank, and I remember seeing him and thinking, oh, he's you know he's not that great of an athlete. He doesn't seem um, as as competitive or committed, <clears throat> and then I saw this transformation of him over um, you know over you know four or five years, where he turned from being a rower who he, he competed in our boat in Athens, and he was a guy who had who had just squeaked into the boat to being um, the stroke of our boat in in Beijing and being the leader of the boat, and. Uh, he simply uh, was someone who really embodied what I call the the responsibility ethic. You know, when he did his own soul searching, and I remember talking to him about this. He, he when he did his own soul searching, he said, "This is what I truly want to do. I truly want to go to the Olympics. I want to be, you know, in you know, in this eight-man rowing boat, and I want to make it happen." And by taking responsibility for his um, discomfort with his certain state of being by being okay with the risk and taking responsibility for the process and his execution of the process, he was able to do that. And even now, you know, post-sport, he, he embodies the same level of professionalism. He's a very successful lawyer um, in, uh, in construction law and with the same sort of, you know, idea and attitude, you know, taking responsibility for the process, being professional, and, you know, expecting excellence, uh, you know, on a regular basis. 
Well, it is. It's about, like you say, uh, at the time, you know, he was more of an introvert. He was willing to put in the effort and the grit and determination that's required. Um, you know, like your book is really speaking about, it's the responsibility ethic. And to kind of wrap our interview up, I want to talk about Mike Spracklin, who being your coach and mentor, um, you obviously had a tremendous amount of ab- admiration for him. And Adam, how important was Mike in your career? Because this is the part about the responsibility ethic where you talk about um, surrounding yourself with the people and the mentors that you can have. Um, but to become a gold medalist, uh, you needed a Mike Spracklin in your life. And what were the lessons that you learned uh, that'll probably stay with you forever from this mentorship with Mike? <clears throat> Mike was a, you know, a deep, deeply caring coach, you know, and he also expected excellence. He expected excellence um, on a regular basis. And the ways that he would do it, he'd, well, he'd have these phrases, these catchphrases that would come out. And he'd say, one thing that he'd say would be, eh, do you want to row with your friends and lose? Or would you rather row with an asshole and win? And so this is something that he would say that would, sometimes it might turn you the wrong way and say, you know what, I, I want to enjoy my path. I want to, uh, I really want to, you know, have a good time on my journey as well as in the destination. But the one thing Mike realized, and I think this is foundational to the idea of the responsibility ethic, and when we talk about uh, about grit, when we talk about joy and effort, we talk about the fact that it's not always going to be easy if you have big goals. Uh, that sometimes you have to have um, you have to uh, you know, endure some discomfort uh, on you know on the journey. And I'd say another thing that Mike Spracklin would say, and I'd say this was this was the most powerful uh, thing he would do, or this most powerful technique he would use uh, while he was coaching us. If he would come up to you and he would see you waffling, and he'd see you in a moment of self-doubt, or a moment of self-pity, or a moment of wallowing, we know we all get there. He'd come up to you and he'd ask you a simple question. He'd say. Uh, do you do you want to win a gold medal, Greg? Do you? Hmm? Yes. <laughs> and so he would look at you, and he would simply question what you wanted to do. And guess what? If you said, no, I don't, he'd be like, okay. And he'd be fine with that. But if you if you looked inside and you said, yeah, well, actually, I do want to win a gold medal. You know, this this goal that I said that I truly want, I actually do want it. Then it it forced you to to harden on and double down and really embrace the you know the uncomfortable parts of the journey. And so when we talk about Mike Spracklin, he is you know, and remains one of the most you know, impactful coaches and mentors that I've ever had in my life, and really one of the greatest lessons he did uh, deliver to me was that. In pursuit of excellence, if you have big goals and high standards, it's going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay. Well, uh, being uncomfortable, and as you talked about, non-attainment, the fear, and most importantly, the responsibility ethic. You know, if you look at the book, 
we didn't get to all 12 strategies of that exceptional people take, but we covered some pretty good ground here in our interview, Adam. If there was any one last thing that you would like to leave our listening audience with, with relation to the responsibility ethic and some of these strategies that people take, what would you want to tell them? What was what is one key takeaway that you want them to take away from this interview? Well, the responsibility ethic really has three parts to it. The first one is self-leadership. The second one is shared leadership. And the last one is work ethic. And when we embrace self-leadership, which is taking responsibility for our, our emotional response and our habitual actions that we take, and taking small actions and efforts to change that uh, to achieve our goals, The second one is shared leadership. So if we take responsibility for the people we work with and we share leadership, and by that I mean we're we're, we're sharing influence, we're giving and we're receiving influence, Uh, we're we're growing as a group and we figure out how to lead one another, work as an effective team. The final one is, is, is work ethic. And we talked a lot about work ethic today, about leaning into fear, about uh, um, uh, not being distracted by failure, uh, taking time to emotionally process uh, what's, what's, what's happening. You know, if we do take self-leadership, we share leadership, and we have that work ethic, we'll find um, success, but not just any kind of success, but we'll have a success that delivers deep satisfaction. Well, I think the most important thing is, is that people are willing to take those risks and not be afraid and step into it and really give it their best all. And that's all you can expect from people. And if you, like you said, I love the cluster effect because getting the benefits from those small wins every day are the things that will keep you propelled toward that larger goal. Adam, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and speaking about your new book called The Responsibility Ethic. Now, in our blog, we're going to have a link to Adam's website as well. Um, you can go to creekspeak.com. That's K-R-E-E-K-S-P-E-A-K.com. There you can learn more about Adam's services, testimonials from clients, his blog, his workshops, and his retreats. Um, You can also get a copy of the book. It'll take you to Amazon or any of the other booksellers there. Um, I'd encourage you to go there. He's also got a series of uh, videos, uh, everything from uh, adopt a growth mindset for success to reflect, learn, and, and let grow and let go, which is something we talked about on this interview. Adam, thanks so much for being on with us and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge about not only just how to... Uh, reach your goal, but to take this responsibility ethic and really look at how important these goals are to you. It really has been a pleasure having you on. Well, thank you, Greg. And uh, thank you to all the listeners who are out there too.